we turn in God's Word to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we begin at verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Thus far we read God's holy word. Our text is verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, in Galatians 2, we have a confrontation between two apostles. The apostle Paul withstands the apostle Peter 
to his face. He does this because Peter is guilty of what Galatians 2 calls dissembling. He dissembled, which means he is guilty of hypocrisy. And here is Peter's hypocrisy, beloved. Peter was content to eat with Gentile believers and thus to fellowship with them. But when certain Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew from those Gentiles and would eat only with the Jews. He did this because he feared men. Fear of man brought a snare. And then Peter's example then spreads to others in the church so that the Jewish believers in the church, including even Barnabas, followed what Peter did. Verse 10 says, And the other Jews dissembled, or were hypocritical likewise, with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or with their hypocrisy. Paul sees this not as bad manners that he will no longer eat with the Gentile Christians, but Paul sees this as a gospel issue. Verse 11, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said, why is it a gospel issue, whether you eat or do not eat with the Gentiles? Well, the gospel says, it does not matter in the church if you are a Jew or a Gentile. And the gospel says that it is not necessary to keep the law, including now the Jewish food laws and those laws which separated the Jews from the Gentiles, not necessary to keep those laws and rules in order to be saved and justified. And Peter and with him the Jewish Christians, and with them Barnabas, claimed to believe the gospel. And now they are not walking uprightly according to the truth of that gospel. And Paul views this as a serious sin, a shocking departure, and something worthy of public rebuke. He withstood him to his face. In response to this, Paul explains and applies the gospel to Peter, and therefore to Barnabas, and to the Jewish Christians, and to the Gentile Christians, the whole church, and also to us. He reminds them of the truth of justification, gracious justification by faith alone without works. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And there, the faith 
of Jesus Christ is the faith of which Jesus Christ is the object. We might say faith in Jesus Christ, justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 16, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. So Paul reminds Peter of what he already knows, the truth of justification. And then in essence, he says, Peter, you confess that justification is by faith alone without works, but your behavior is saying something else. You're acting as if your justification depended on your works. You're acting as if you were still under the law for justification. That's how you're living when you separate yourself from your fellow believers who happen to be Gentiles in the church, and you are then forcing the Gentiles to live as if they were under the law for justification also. And then Paul explains that he has a new relationship to that law. He makes a personal confession in verse 19. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Paul says, my relationship to the law has changed, and therefore I live in a different way than I lived before. And Peter's relationship to the law has also changed, and therefore he ought not to be living as if he were still under the law in this hypocritical manner. And then Paul says there's a different way of living. There's living under the law, which is what he used to do as a Pharisee, as a legalist. But there's a different way of living, and that is living by faith. The life, he says, that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God, you might say. And that's our subject this evening, beloved. This new way of living that we have as Christians, living by the faith of the Son of God. Living by the faith of the Son of God. Notice first the explanation for this, second the meaning of this, and third the motivation for this. This text, beloved, is a very beautiful text. It's a very well-known text. It's also a difficult, a complicated, and even a confusing text. And if you read that text carefully, you'll notice two things. Two things will strike you from the words. First, the personal confession of the Apostle Paul. And second, the prevalence of the verb live or the idea of life or living. 
Let me read the text again and emphasize those things. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I count there eight personal references to I or me and five references to life or living. Now, the complicated or confusing aspect of the text, beloved, is this. Who lives? Who lives? And there are two individuals mentioned in the text who are described as living or not living. On the one hand, the apostle Paul lives. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. On the other hand, Paul says, I do not live, yet not I. And who lives then? Christ liveth in me. So the apostle Paul lives, but he also does not live. Christ lives in Paul. And how then, beloved, are we to understand such confusing, mysterious, wonderful, beautiful words? Indeed, in terms of quantity, there are more references to the Apostle Paul's living than to Paul's not living and to Christ's living. Three references in the text to the Apostle Paul's living. One, nevertheless, I live. Two, the life which I now live. Three, I live. One reference to the Apostle Paul not living, yet not I. One reference to Christ living. Christ liveth in me. Some have said, there is no I in salvation. That ought to give them pause. Of course, there is an I in salvation. I am the one who is saved. I am the object, therefore, of God's salvation. I do not save myself. I do not contribute to my salvation. My salvation is God's work, but there is certainly an I in salvation. Now, appealing to this text, beloved, some have fallen into the error of mysticism. And mysticism is the error of confusing the believer's personality with Christ's personality so that those, those two personalities, the believers and Christ's personalities, are merged into one. 
and mystics appeal to this text by emphasizing those words, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the mystic will then say, I do not believe Christ believes in me, through me, for me, instead of me. I do not repent. Christ repents in me, through me, for me, instead of me. I do not perform good works. Christ performs good works in me, through me, for me, instead of me. That's mysticism. And then extreme mysticism goes further and says that the believer is Christ. Not merely that the believer lives out of Christ, or the believer is in Christ, or the believer has union with Christ. Those things are, of course, true. But the extreme mystic says the believer is Christ. You cannot distinguish the believer from Christ. They are as it were, one person. I am Christ. Christ is me, is the cry of the extreme mystic. Mysticism is a serious error. Mysticism is not the teaching of the text. Mysticism leads to passivity. It leads to doing nothing. Because if I do not live, Christ simply lives in me, through me, for me and instead of me, then I do not do anything, and then I can live as I please, while Christ, without any effort on my part or any conscious activity of mine, he lives in me and through me and for me and instead of me, and if he wants to work in me, he may do so, and I will sit and wait for him to act. That is passivity. That is mysticism. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, it's one thing, of course, to reject mysticism, but we haven't yet answered our question, who lives? Does the apostle Paul live, or does Christ live in the text. And the key to understanding this, beloved, is to see that the apostle here is speaking of himself in two ways. Who he was and who he now is. He's speaking here of a transformation, a change in him. A transformation which is so radical, so fundamental, that you could almost say that Paul is a new person. I say almost because, strictly speaking, we do not become new persons when we are regenerated and converted and saved. We become new creatures. We have a new heart. We have a new life. We have a new man but we are not new persons. 
Well, who then are these two, the old and the new? Well, the old Paul is Saul of Tarsus, the unbeliever, the Jew, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, and the hater of Jesus Christ. We're familiar with him. He was on the road to Damascus. The old Paul trusted in the law, in his obedience to the law, for his salvation, especially his justification before God. That old Paul is gone. He died on the Damascus road when Jesus appeared to him, when Jesus gave him new life, when he was converted. That old Paul died. Verse 19 tells us, For I, through the law, am dead to the law. Literally, I died to the law. I died. And when Paul died to the law, the law lost its power over him. Just as if someone is being accused by the law of some crime or other, or pursued by the law, if that person dies, the law loses all power over him. Paul died to the law. The law lost its power to condemn him, to curse him, to damn him. The law lost its power to demand obedience from him for his justification, his relationship to the law changed because Jesus Christ satisfied the law on his behalf and on our behalf also. The old Paul died. The new Paul is Paul the believer, Paul the Christian, Paul the apostle, Paul the member of the church, He lives. Now, of course, these two Pauls are the same person. But the transformation is so great that Paul can speak of himself here as if he were an entirely new person. Notice verse 19 again. For I, through the law, am dead or died to the law, so that... I, and it's the same I, as it were, the same person speaking, so that I might live unto God. The old Paul lived under the law, sought his salvation and justification in the law. The old Paul died. The new Paul lives. He lives unto God. He lives in devotion to God, to the glory of God. Notice he says, that I might live unto God. Not that Christ might live unto God in me, through me, for me, or instead of me, but that I might live unto God. Then two little words in the text explain this further. Two little words beginning with N. Now, N-O-W, and not, N-O-T. 
The word now in that phrase, the life which I now live, provides a contrast then between the life of the old Paul and the life of the new Paul. There was a then before Paul died to the law. There was a then. I used to live this way. I used to do this or that. And then there is a now This is what I now do. This is how I now live. And the not in verse 20, yet not I, is literally not anymore I, or no longer I. Nevertheless, I live, yet no longer I, or nevertheless, I live, yet no more I. The old I, the old Paul, He no longer lives. He lives no more because he died. And the new I, or the new Paul, well, he lives. He now lives. And that language might be strange to us, confusing to us, but the Bible uses it elsewhere. In Romans 6, verse 6, the apostle writes this, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And again, that not means no longer or not anymore. The idea is that we should serve sin no longer or that we should no, not anymore serve sin. Now apply that truth, beloved, to yourself. The old you, the unregenerate, unbelieving, impenitent, fruitless you, the old you is no more. The old you died. And the new you, the born-again, believing penitent, obedient, fruitful you, the new you lives. It is almost as if, as a new creature in Christ Jesus, you are a new person. And that's why you can say, and I can say with Paul, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, or yet no longer I. Now, the explanation for this transformation from the old Paul to the new Paul is Paul's death to the law, which we've looked at already, and Paul's crucifixion with Christ. I, through the law, am dead or died to the law, that I might live unto God, I am crucified with Christ. Christ was crucified. We know this. We confess this. It's part of the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But another truth which we might not be so familiar with is this. I am crucified with Christ. The believer is crucified with Christ. 
We confess in the Apostles' Creed that Christ was crucified for us, that Christ suffered God's wrath and curse on the cross for us, that by his death he accomplished our salvation, he paid for our sins, he died a sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross for us. But Paul goes further and says, not Christ was crucified for me, but I am crucified with Christ, which is a very different and beautiful truth. I am crucified with Christ means that just as Christ was crucified on the cross, so we are also crucified. What happened to Christ also happened to us because Christ as the head is the head of his people. And therefore, every believer can say and must say with the apostle here, I am crucified with Christ. We call this truth union with Christ. Sometimes we call this truth the mystical union. And the mystical union has nothing to do with mysticism, but it's talking about this mysterious union that we have with Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of such language expressing that union between Christ and his people. In him or with him or together with him. Those phrases appear time and time again, especially in the epistles of Paul. Romans 6 is an example of this. Romans 6, 3 through 6 says this, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And again, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ was crucified. I am united to Christ. He is my head. Therefore, I am crucified with him. And that verb, crucified with, is in the perfect tense. And that describes a completed action in the past which has ongoing effects in the present. In English, the perfect tense is this, I have been, B-E-E-N, I have been 
crucified with Christ. Something happened in the past, it has effects into the present. If I said to you, I have been bitten by a serpent, I have been bitten by a snake, I mean, a serpent, a snake has bitten me in the past and I am still feeling the effects of its bite in the present. The perfect tense. If I say, I have been crucified with Christ, I mean, I was crucified with Christ in the past and I am still enjoying the benefits of that in the present. I have been crucified with Christ. And Paul's crucifixion with Christ then has fundamentally and permanently changed who he is. We said the old Paul died. He died because he is united to Christ. He is crucified with Christ. The old Paul was crucified. The old Paul died. The old Paul was buried. And the same thing is true with respect to us. The old me, the unregenerate, unbelieving me, was crucified with Christ. The old me died with Christ. The old me was buried with Christ. And that has fundamental permanent changes for me in the present, almost as if I were a new person, a different person from whom I was before. And yet, I am the same person. The Catechism explains it this way, Lord's Day 16, question and answer 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, by the power of that, that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. Think Romans 6, verse 6. So that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So in summary, beloved, Paul died to the law. And as he writes this epistle, he remains dead to the law. That happened when he was crucified with Christ. And now Paul says to Peter, as he rebukes him before the church, Peter, this is true also of you. Why then, Peter, are you living as if it were not true of you, as if you had not been crucified with Christ, as if you were still under the law? And he calls Peter then, and Barnabas, and all the rest in the church, to live out of that truth and to walk according to that truth, because they were not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. We have seen, beloved, what happened to the old Paul. He was crucified with Christ. He died to the law. And yet, that's not the end of Paul. 
because he goes on to say, nevertheless, I live. I died. I was crucified. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now, Paul here does not explicitly say so, but he also rose again with Christ. That's the teaching of other passages of Scripture. If Christ died, if Christ was crucified, if Christ was buried, if Christ rose again, and if we are in him as we are, then we died and we were buried and we also rose again with him. And having risen again with Christ, we have a new life. A new life which we receive from Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the life of regeneration, eternal life. And we live that life, this new life, this spiritual life, this Christian life, we live that life in the flesh, the life which I now live in the flesh, the apostle says. And flesh has different meanings according to the context, but flesh is fundamentally our human nature. We speak of flesh and blood. Flesh is our human nature from its perspective of weakness and frailty. We learn in Scripture that all flesh is as grass. And the emphasis here then, flesh is on that ordinary human life which we live in this world with all of its infirmities. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, this life, this new life of Jesus Christ, he lives not in heavenly glory yet, but he lives it in the flesh, in the normal, everyday life of this world. And we live that life also in the flesh. We get up in the morning. We go to work or to play. We look after a family. We eat, we drink, we sleep. That's our life in the flesh. We live unto God. We pray. We read God's word. We love God and the neighbor. We serve others. We do good works. We worship the Lord. In short, it's our life in the flesh. And Paul says about that life in verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I might live unto God in the flesh, in this life. And one day I will live unto God in heavenly glory after this life. Notice that Paul does not write the life which I now live according to the flesh or after the flesh, but the life which I now live in the flesh. To live according to the flesh or after the flesh, that's the life of the unbeliever. You're living a life then in harmony with the sinful flesh of man. 
a wicked life, a sinful, self-serving life, not the Christian life. The life of the unbeliever is life according to or after the flesh. Paul used to live that way, after or according to the flesh, but now he lives in the flesh and unto God. Romans 8, 5, and 6 describe these two kinds of life, living after or according to the flesh or living by the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, and 6, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's our new life, beloved. That's why we who have died to the law, who have been crucified with Christ, who live unto God, that's why we cannot live an ungodly life any longer. We may not, and we cannot. Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 2 that we are dead to sin. We've died to the law. We've been crucified with Christ. We are dead to sin. We can no longer live in the sin in which we once lived and to which we are now dead. We live this life then, the life of one who has died to the law, the life of one who has been crucified with Christ, the life of one who lives unto God. We live that life in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God. And that's why Paul wrote earlier, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And as I said earlier, that does not mean that Paul's personality has somehow merged with Christ's personality so that Paul's personality no longer exists. It's union with Christ, not merging into or assimilation into Christ. The idea is that Christ liveth in me by his Holy Spirit. He quickens me. He works in me by the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies me by the Holy Spirit. And the result of that work then is that I live unto God. How then does Christ dwell in us? Not by coming physically and dwelling in us in some kind of weird possession of us, but Here's how Christ dwells in us. Romans 8, 9, and 10 explain this. Romans 8, 9, and 10. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Notice, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, so the Spirit of God, is synonymous with the Spirit of Christ. And then he says, And if Christ be in 
you. So if the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, is in you, then Christ himself is in you. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 3.17 adds this, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, by the Holy Spirit, because we are united to Christ by faith. It is by faith that we receive Christ, that we embrace Him, that we live out of Him. And so Paul writes, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not the faith that the Son of God has in Himself, but rather it is by faith in the Son of God that He is the object of our faith. We live by faith in Him. Which means, of course, that Christ is everything to us. Christ is everything to the believer. Christ is the source of our life. Christ is the power of our life. Without Christ, we can do nothing. That's why Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish Christians were so foolish in Galatians chapter 2. They were saying by their behavior, if not by their doctrine, that the source and power of their life was the law and the keeping of the law for salvation and especially justification. And that's why they deserved a rebuke. And that's why this was a gospel issue. Hypocritical behavior in the church, this was a gospel issue. And so Paul says to them, I, with all Christians, died to the law, and I, with all Christians, live unto God, and I, with all Christians, have been crucified with Christ, and I, with all Christians, live not by the law, not by my own strength, but by faith in Christ." And through faith in Christ, then, I derive from him grace and power and strength to live this new life which he has given to me, to live that new life in the flesh, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God of God. And then Paul adds something at the end of the text to reveal his motivation in living a new holy life of devotion to God. The law will not provide such a motivation. The one who seeks salvation in the law is living out of the motivation of fear or the motivation of earning something with God, but the motivation the gospel gives is very different. The gospel gives us a motivation, the motivation of gratitude, the motivation of thankfulness. Paul adds at the end of the text, describing this Son of God, who loved me 
and give himself for me. The apostle could have written, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. That would be true, but the Spirit led him to write this, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal and natural Son of God. This one has dignity. This one has honor. This one has power. This one is not a mere man. This one is God, and he loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul has his eye of faith on the cross where this Jesus displayed his love. He loved me, says the apostle about the Son of God. He loved me, which means that he was moved by deep affection for me. He was moved by his delight in me. He sought my welfare. He loved me. He sought my good. He sought my salvation. He loved me. And then he drew near to me to establish a bond with me. That's what love is in the Bible, beloved. This Son of God loved me. And then he showed that love for me because he gave himself for me. He sacrificed himself for me. He gave himself to suffering. He gave himself to humiliation. He gave himself to shame and to death and to the cross to purchase me from death and the devil and hell to pay for all of my sins, to accomplish my salvation, to purchase for me all the blessings of salvation and the blessing of life itself. And since I know that, and since I believe that, that is a motivation to me. One who has died to the law, one who has been crucified with Christ, that is a motivation to me to live no longer unto myself, but to live by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me. And gave himself for me. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what wondrous love the Son of God has displayed toward us. He gave himself for us. And having given himself for us, he has quickened us with that life that he has in the resurrection so that we have that new life and so that we live out of that new life by the faith that thou hast given to us, which thou hast worked in us by thy Holy Spirit. Forgive, O Father, our sins when we are not as devoted to thee as we ought to be, when we are distracted by our devotion to the world And work in us mightily by thy Spirit so that we live this new life in the flesh to the glory of thy most holy name. For Christ's sake, amen.